Let's take a look at chapter four. Confront the brutal facts, yet never lose faith. Now, I remember this one from the chapter that was just describing the chapters that were yet to happen. There is no worse mistake in public leadership than to hold out false hopes soon to be swept away. Winston S. Churchill, The Hinge of Fate. In the early 1950s, the Great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, commonly known as A&P, stood as the largest retailing organization in the world and one of the largest corporations in the U.S., at one point ranking behind only General Motors in annual sales. Kroger, in contrast, stood as an unspectacular grocery chain, less than half the size of A&P, with performance that barely kept pace with the general market. Now, I hope this one's about Kroger. You know I'm a Kroger guy. Ralph says Kroger. Then in the 1960s, A&P began to falter while Kroger began to lay the foundations for a transition into a great company. From 1959 to 73, both companies lagged behind the market, with Kroger pulling just a bit ahead of A&P. After that, the two companies completely diverged, and over the next 25 years, Kroger generated cumulative returns 10 times the market and 80 times better than A&P. How did such a dramatic reversal of fortunes happen? And how could a company as great as A&P become so awful? A&P had a perfect model for the first half of the 20th century, when two world wars and a depression imposed frugality upon Americans, cheap, plentiful groceries sold in utilitarian stores. But in the affluent second half of the 20th century, Americans changed. They wanted nicer stores, bigger stores, more choices in stores. They wanted fresh-baked bread, flowers, health foods, cold medicines, fresh produce, 45 choices of cereal, and 10 types of milk. They wanted offbeat items, like five different types of expensive sprouts and various concoctions of protein powder and Chinese healing herbs, or the wacky wild wheat germ. I made the last one up, in case that wasn't obvious. Oh, and they wanted to be able to do their banking and get their annual flu shots while shopping. In short, they no longer wanted grocery stores. They wanted superstores with a big block S on the chest, offering almost everything under one roof, with lots of parking, cheap prices, clean floors, and a gazillion checkout lines. Now, right off the bat, you might be thinking, okay, so the story of A&P is one of an aging company that had a strategy that was right for the times, but the times changed and the world passed it by as younger, better-attuned companies gave customers more of what they wanted. What's so interesting about that? Wow, I feel like that's tapping the glass a little. Like, why, why, uh, why put that idea in people's heads? Like, I think that could probably still apply no matter what you're about to say. But go ahead, prove me wrong. Here's what's interesting. Wow, that's something you don't usually see like written down. Here's what's interesting. <laughs> it does draw a comparison to make you wonder, you know, 
whether everything else was admittedly uninteresting. But anyway, both Kroger and A&P were old companies. Kroger at 82, A&P at 111, heading into the 70s. Both companies had nearly all their assets invested in traditional grocery stores. Both companies had strongholds outside the major growth areas of the U.S. And both companies had knowledge of how the world around them was changing. Yet one of these two companies confronted the brutal facts of reality head-on and completely changed its entire system in response. And the other stuck its head in the sand. In short, Ralph's employed disco balls and cocaine. Hit it! I don't have a I don't have a disco thing queued up, but you can imagine. In 1958, Forbes magazine described A and P as the Hermit Kingdom, <laughs> run as an absolute monarchy by an aging prince. Wow. Uh, I can't believe it didn't succeed uh ralph berger the successor to the hartford brothers who built the a p industry sought to preserve two things above all else cash dividends for the family foundation and the past glory of the hartford brothers according to one a p director berger considered himself the reincarnation of old john hartford even to the point of wearing a flower in his lapel every day from hartford's greenhouse he tried to carry out against all opposition what he thought Mr. John Hartford would have liked. Um, yeah, I mean, I could have tipped you off to the fact that anyone who claims to be the reincarnation of someone is not going to be the best decision maker. Because uh, at the very least, even if they are a reincarnation of them, they should have decided not to say it out loud. Berger instilled a what-would-Mr.-Hartford-do approach to decisions, living by the motto, you can't argue with a hundred years of success. Indeed, through Berger, Mr. Hartford continued to be the dominant force on the board for nearly 20 years, never mind the fact that he was already dead. Hmm, well done. That's pretty funny. I like how you did that. As the brutal facts about the mismatch between its past model and the changing world began to pile up, AMP mounted an increasingly spirited defense against those facts. In one series of events, the company opened a new store called the Golden Key, a separate brand wherein it could experiment with new methods and models to learn what customers wanted. It sold no A&P products. It gave the store manager more freedom. It experimented with innovative new departments, and it began to evolve toward the modern superstore. Customers really liked it. Here, right under their noses, they began to discover the answer to the questions of why they were losing the market share and what they could do about it. All right, I'm intrigued. It sounds like they were actually doing some really forward-thinking things. What did A&P executives do with the golden key? They didn't like the answers that it gave, so they closed it. Okay, well, that's pretty straightforward. I mean, yeah, I, I there's, can't really say much more about that. They just didn't listen to it. They didn't like it, and they disbanded it. That's, we're just, this is like debating religion with a religious person. Like, what? What are you going to... You made your point. Everything they say has already been refuted. A&P then began a pattern of lurching from one strategy to another, always looking for a single-stroke solution to its problems. It held pep rallies, launched programs, grabbed fads, fired CEOs, hired CEOs, and fired them again. It launched what one industry observer called a scorched-earth policy. Jesus Christ! a radical price-cutting strategy to build market share, but never dealt with the basic fact that customers wanted not lower prices, but different stores. I feel like there's more to that 
nickname of the scorched earth there's got to be something further that's like the civil war thing right where they burnt down all the crops and everything and just made everything worth nothing once they were done with it the price cutting led to cost cutting which led to even drabber stores and poorer service which in turn drove customers away further driving down margins resulting in even dirtier stores and worse service after a while the crud kept mounting said one former a and p manager we were not we not only had dirt we had dirty dirt it sounds like they were just uh Sounds like they were ahead of Walmart before Walmart was there. They should be the biggest store in the world. Meanwhile, over at Kroger, a completely different pattern arose. Contrary to the stodgy A&P, they allowed Jews in their store. Uh, Kroger also conducted experiments in the 1960s. (laughs) Sorry, just experiments in the 1960s makes me think of all the weird acid experiments the government did on people. Uh, to test the Superstore concept. By 1970, the Kroger executive team came to an inescapable conclusion. The old model grocery store, which accounted for nearly 100% of Kroger's business, was going to become extinct. Unlike A&P, however, Kroger confronted this brutal truth and acted on it. The rise of Kroger is remarkably simple and straightforward, almost maddeningly so. During their interviews, Lyle Everingham... Sounds almost like Lyle Everyman and his predecessor, Jim Herring, CEOs during the pivotal transition years, were polite and helpful, but a bit exasperated by our questions. To them, it just seemed so clear. When we asked Everingham to allocate 100 points across the top five factors in the transition, he said, I find your question a bit perplexing. Basically, we did extensive research and the data came back loud and clear. The super combination stores were the way of the future. We also learned that you had to be number one or number two in each market, or you had to exit. Sure, there was some skepticism at first, but once we looked at the facts, there was really no question about what we had to do. So we just did it. Kroger decided to eliminate, change, or replace every single store and and, uh, depart every region that did not fit the new realities. The whole system would be turned inside out, store by store, block by block, city by city, state by state. Country by country, world by world, universe by universe, galaxy by galaxy. By the early 1990s, Kroger had rebuilt its entire system on the new model and was well on the way to becoming the number one grocery store chain in America, a position it would attain in 1999. Meanwhile, ANP still had over half its stores in the old 50s size and had dwindled to a sad remnant of a once great American institution. Make America great again! Bring back ANP! Facts are better than dreams. One of the dominant themes from our research is that breakthrough results come about by a series of good decisions, diligently executed and accumulated one on top of another. Of course, the good to great companies did not have a perfect track record. But on the whole, they made many more good decisions than bad ones, and they made many more good decisions than the comparison companies. Even more important, on the really big choices, such as Kroger's decision to throw all its resources into the task of converting its entire system to the superstore concept, they were remarkably on target. This, of course, begs a question. I don't know if it begs a question so much as politely hints at it but uh 
Are we merely studying a set of companies that just happened by luck to stumble into the right set of decisions? Or was there something distinctive about their process that dramatically increased the likelihood of being right? The answer, it turns out, is that there was something quite distinctive about their process. Well, it didn't beg that question at all. Stumble, like, stumble, you could have... What? Did they stumble into the right set of decisions? Okay, whatever. The good to great companies displayed two distinctive forms of disciplined thought. The first, and the topic of this chapter, is that they infused the entire system with the brutal facts of reality. They hung up pictures of... No, I'm not going to go there. Uh, the second, which we will discuss in the next chapter, is that they developed a simple yet deeply insightful frame of reference for all decisions. When, as in the Kroger case, you start with an honest and diligent effort to determine the truth of the situation, the right decisions often become self-evident. Not always, of course, but often. And even if all decisions do not become self-evident, one thing is certain. You absolutely cannot make a series of good decisions without, <laughs> decisions without first confronting the brutal facts. The good-to-great companies operated in accordance with this principle, and the comparison companies generally did not. Mm. Well, if you're going to bring up a question as vague as... Or, like, I don't know how to put it, but it seems... We'll just say vague. Uh, to say, do they happen to luck into the right set of decisions? I mean, that's not something you typically think of as lucky. Like, you could talk about, like, the market in that area expanding or something. But if you're going to go down that weirdly, like, esoteric-specific route, like, what are you backing it up with then? Just they listen to they listen to the reality of it. Okay, so a lot of people hear the message, and they don't change anything. I mean, that's clearly not the right thing to do. Uh, I think it's important to state because people, due to their psychology, um, will make that mistake. However, much like the Kroger people who were like, yeah, we just did the right thing. Like, that's really all you can say about it. I mean, this guy's about to prove me wrong, but that's all you can uh, productively say about it. Like... You just, you, if you see the answer, you got to do it then. That's it. That's all you can do. Consider Pitney Bowes versus Addressograph. It would be hard to find two companies in more similar positions at a specific moment in history that then diverged so dramatically. In 1973, they had similar revenues, profits, numbers of employees, and stock charts. Both companies held near-monopoly market positions with virtually the same customer base, Pitney Bowes in postage meters, and Addressograph in address-duplicating machines. So they, like, made the numbers that go on houses? And both... Wow, it's hard to believe that's, like... I mean, I get... They must have really cornered the market to have that be, like, a business even worth talking about. That seems like such a, like... I mean, you, houses change hands, and you don't even need to change the numbers. Like, how much money is there in that? And both faced the imminent reality of losing their monopolies. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, they had to completely corner the market on it to make money. By 2000, however, Pitney Bowes had grown to over 30,000 employees and revenues in excess of $4 billion, compared to the sorry remnants of Addressograph, which had less than $100 million and only 670 employees. Wait, Pitney Bowes made what? Postage meters? 
I don't really know what that is. That's like where you buy stamps, I guess. Yeah, it's like how you make stamps, I think. For the shareholder, Pitney Bowes outperformed a Drissograph. 3,581 to 1. Yes, 3,581 times better. In 1976, a charismatic visionary leader named Roy Ash became CEO of a Drissograph. A self-described conglomerateur, Ash had previously built Lytton by stacking acquisitions together that had since faltered. According to Fortune, he sought to use Addressograph as a platform to reestablish his leadership prowess in the eyes of the world. Ash set forth a vision to dominate the likes of IBM, Xerox, and Kodak in the emerging field of office automation. A bold plan for a company that had previously only dominated the envelope address duplication business. Oh, they make... Hold on, I gotta pause this. Okay, so it, it it addresses envelopes, so that's why they're similar. But I get it's just like a stamp? Like, it's it basically seems like it does the same thing as, like, when you have a stamp that addresses envelopes. All right, so Ash set forth a vision to dominate... IBM, Xerox, Kodak, and emerging field of office automation, a bold plan for a company that had previously only dominated the envelope address duplication business. There is nothing wrong with a bold vision. But Ash became so wedded to his quixotic quest that according to Business Week, he refused to confront the mounting evidence that his plan was doomed to fail and might take down the rest of the company with it. He insisted on milking cash from profitable arenas, eroding the core business while throwing money after a gambit that had little chance of success. <clears throat> well, it sounds like he's doing exactly the same thing as the other people, but he, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's just that he picked the wrong thing to go after. Like, there could be other things, but everything we're talking about about him is things that we've lauded in other people. Uh, just he the one he picked didn't work although obviously the office like looking at those company i know kodak isn't doing well anymore uh because of digital printing photography but uh it was really big and the other companies certainly um were big at least for a while so it seemed like he had the right idea about going after that Later, after Ash was thrown out of office and the company had filed for bankruptcy, from which it did later emerge, he still refused to confront reality, saying, We lost some battles, but we were winning the war. But Addressograph was not even close to winning the war. I mean, maybe it's because Addressograph just sounds like it's from the 1800s. No matter, like it, uh, maybe spice it up with like Digitograph or some bullshit. I don't know. Uh, was not even, but Addressograph was not even close to winning the war, and people throughout the company knew it at the time. Yet the truth went unheard until it was too late. In fact, many of Addressograph's key people bailed out of the company, dispirited by their inability to get top management to deal with the facts. That's right, they couldn't get them to deal with the emerging technology of the fax machine. Get it, because it, I said facts, but it sounded like facts, because it's a joke about it's a joke that only works because uh, of my failure to uh, produce the proper elocution. Pitney Bowes versus... Oh, God, that's a graph. Don't even worry about that. 
moving on. Perhaps we should give Mr. Ash some credit for being a visionary who tried to push his company to greater heights. And to be fair, the addressograph board fired Ash before he had a chance to fully carry out his plans. But the evidence from a slew of respectable articles written at the time suggests that Ash turned a blind eye to any reality inconsistent with his own vision of the world. We have a box. There is nothing wrong with pursuing a vision for greatness. After all, the good to great companies also set out to create greatness. But unlike the comparison companies, the good to great companies continually refined the path to greatness with the brutal facts of reality. Okay. That was... It's a good reminder of what we're actually talking about here. But it's particularly good because it's particularly necessary because that whole explanation of the concept was not well done. Um, if that was a good example, at the very least, it was not explained well. Like, they just said he he turned a blind eye. That's it? Like, you're going to spend all those fucking pages talking about the details of, like, it was the the office, the automation things that he's going to go into, like, none of those things actually matter, uh, you know, as far, except for, like, fun facts. Like, what matters is the thing you can derive from it and the concepts. And we don't talk about how he turned a blind eye or what he could have seen or how he could have responded to that. Like, there's nothing useful in that at all. You're And you're just pointing out again, and he didn't do it right. Like, well... Give me fucking something to sink my teeth into. Like, I'll do the work. I'll try and read between the lines. I'll figure out something. But this is giving me absolutely nothing. (sighs) When you turn over rocks and look at all the squiggly things underneath, you can either put the rock down or you can say, my job is to turn over rocks and look at the squiggly things. Well, it's good to see we're back into uh, really high intellectual concepts here. Even if what you see can scare the hell out of you. That quote from Pitney Bowes executive Fred Perdue could have come out of any of the Pitney Bowes executives we interviewed. (laughs) They loved talking about squiggly things. They all seemed a bit, well, to be blunt, neurotic and compulsive about Pitney's position in the world. This is a culture that is very hostile to complacency, said one executive. We have an itch that what we just accomplished, no matter how great, is never going to be good enough to sustain us, said another. Pitney's first management meeting of the new year typically... And also, can I just go back? What was the thing? He made a point in the last chapter. It ended with, like, the family life thing. Like, whatever happened to that? All you said is they liked going to work. Like, there wasn't even an example of, like, I know this company wasn't around, but, like, Google, like, uh, like they tried to make... Like, they put in the washing machines or whatever. Like, so you felt like you're home. Or, like, they did, like company outings or some shit like they're just like making a point like this is what but then it doesn't talk about like anything useful from it they're saying can you have a good life yes well these good to great companies are ones in which the people liked each other like okay that you're not that's cool but you're already there like if you're if that's the like how do you get there Also, it didn't mention things outside of work at all, although it, like, alluded to them. The only thing it said was that the guy liked to putter around his house. Anyway, coming back to right now. Uh, Pitney's first management meeting of the new year typically consisted of about 15 minutes discussing the previous year. Almost always superb results. (laughs) 
Sorry, I just threw up in my mouth. Uh, and two hours talking about the scariest squiggly things that might impede future results. Pitney Bowes sales meet. God, I, I'm just, what the fuck was that thing with the Xerox guy who wanted to d- compete with Xerox, the addressograph guy? Like, what the fuck? Pitney Bowes sales meetings were quite different from the aren't we great rah-rah sales conference typical at most companies. The entire management team would lay itself open to searing questions and challenges from salespeople who dealt directly with customers. The company created a long-standing tradition of forums where people could stand up and tell senior executives what the company was doing wrong, shoving rocks with squiggly things in their faces and saying, look, you'd better pay attention to this. That's That's a good thing to point out. That's a cool thing. Uh, the addresser gra- oh. Nina, calm down. The dog's getting- <laughs> Nina! Okay, but seriously, like, uh, m- maybe he's about to go into it, and then that's great, but so far you're just, like, what you're saying about this, which is a good point, like, that the people were allowed to say this is what's wrong, it doesn't sound like the addressograph people weren't doing that. Like, he realized they needed to go into good things. They just said he didn't what did they say? He didn't do it the right way? I don't I don't even remember how they, they summed it up, but it sounded like he had the right idea. It just didn't work out. Nothing has shown me that he wasn't willing to listen to the feedback, except the fact that you just said he wasn't willing to. Like, there was one sentence where they said that, and then... All right, the addressograph case. Okay, here we go. Let's see. Maybe you'll prove me wrong. I hope you do. Especially in contrast to Pitney Bowes, illustrates a vital point. Strong, charismatic leaders like Roy Ash can all too easily become the de facto reality driving a company. Okay, that's a good point. Someone's too strong of a leader, or someone's just too domineering, and then people are afraid to bring things up, or they can't bring things up. However, that is not what this chapter is purporting to talk about. Like, this is a separate thing that you're going into. Throughout the study, we found comparison companies where the top leader led with such force or instilled such fear that people worried about the leader. What he would, they worried about the leader. What he would say, what he would think, what he would do. Uh, they worried more about the leader. What he would say, what he would do, blah, blah, blah. Then they worried about external reality and what it could do to the company. Okay, that's fair. That's a good point. Recall the climate at Bank of America, described in the previous chapter, wherein managers could not even make a comment until they knew how the CEO felt. All right, I see. I guess it all is going okay, but I just, I don't have faith that it's going to pull it all together at the end, but I, I, we'll see. We did not find this pattern at companies like Wells Fargo and Pitney Bowes, where people were much more worried about the scary squiggly things than the feelings of top management. The moment a leader allows himself to become the primary reality people worry about, rather than reality being the primary reality, you have a recipe for mediocrity, or worse. This is one of the key reasons why less charismatic leaders often produce better long-term results than their more charismatic counterparts. I mean, I disagree with the fact that you're using charismatic completely synonymous with, uh, like, totalitarian or (laughs) domineering. Uh, but I, I get where you're going. You're just not doing a good job of going there, but I'm with you. Box beside. Indeed, for those of you with a strong charismatic personality, it is worthwhile to consider the idea that charisma can be as much a liability as an asset. 
The strength of personality can sow the seeds of problems when people filter the brutal facts from you. You can overcome the liabilities of having charisma, but it does require conscious attention. Okay, I just think this guy, it's not a bad point. I just think he happens to not know what charisma means. So, you know, we'll, we'll forgive him that. Winston Churchill understood the liabilities of his strong personality, and he compensated for them beautifully during the Second World War. He may have been domineering, but he also bombed a lot of Japs, so good for him. This makes you uncomfortable, right? What's the alternative? Letting them win? Obviously not. I don't know. I'm not a war historian. Uh, Churchill, as you know, maintained a bold and unwavering Britain vision that Britain would not just survive, but prevail as a great nation, despite the whole world wondering... Uh, wondering not if, but when Britain would sue for peace. Okay, that's the second time he's used that. So I think now I have the answer to my question from before. He's not talking about literally suing. Sue, sue for peace. I'm going to pause it and I'm going to look that up. All right, from Wikipedia, suing for peace. Suing for peace is an act by a warring nation to initiate a peace process. Suing for peace is usually initiated by the losing party in an attempt to stave off an unconditional surrender and may sometimes be favorable to the winning nation as prosecuting a, as prosecuting a war to a complete... Okay, they're using prosecuting in a different way. They're just... It's just like... It's, I mean, it's, it's cool. Actually, whatever. I like it. I haven't heard it used that way they mean like carrying out as prosecuting a war to a complete or unconditional surrender may be costly uh, my only issue is that we're talking about something that's like confusing and you're making it a little more confusing but whatever in this case then the word sue is being used in its original now obsolete meaning of to make petition to or for rather than the usual meaning of to take legal action against it's kind of interesting it clears it up anyway, to make petition to or for. So that's like you would sue for your right. But we have such a litigious society that that <laughs> began to be such a common way it was used that it just probably took on the legal aspect because that's when people were suing for something. That's what they were suing. That's the way they would sue is in court. Um... Britain would sue for peace. During the darkest days, with nearly all of Europe and North Africa under Nazi control, the United States hoping to stay out of the conflict, and Hitler fighting a one-front war he had not yet turned on Russia, Churchill said, We are resolved to destroy Hitler and every vestige of the Nazi regime. From this, nothing will turn us. Nothing. We will never parley. We will never negotiate with Hitler or any of his gang. We shall fight him by land. We shall fight him by sea. We shall fight him with airplanes. Yippity yee. <laughs> Sorry. We shall fight him in the air until, with God's help, we have rid the earth of his shadow. Hmm. When you put it like that, now it just seems like two nations batter, battling over, like, land and power. The two superpowers battling it out. Doesn't seem as much like... The fact that they were just being bad and evil. Something about that just sounds like power. Maybe the U.S. let them fight it out and then jumped in and were like, dude, you know what? We could fucking be... Because that, that was the turning point. Like, that was when the U.S. Or maybe it was World War One, But I know before World War One for sure, we were not, like, the nation at all. 
So maybe we let them beat each other up. Then we're like, yeah, the Jews can come over. You can invent stuff and let's step in and clean this fucking shit up and take over the world. Um, armed with this bold vision, Churchill never failed, however, to confront the most brutal facts. He feared that his towering, charismatic personality might deter bad news from reaching him in its starkest form. So early in the war, he created an entirely separate department outside the normal chain of command, called the Statistical Office, with the principal function of feeding him, continuously updated and completely unfiltered, the most brutal facts of reality. <laughs> That's fucking metal. I mean, it sounds like he's putting it in a way that makes it sound negative. Really, it's just feeding the most uh, accurate things, you know, so they're not necessarily bad. But the way he put it is kind of awesome. He relied heavily on this special unit throughout the war, although biased. Awesome, but biased, you know, just it just sounds cool. That's what I'm saying. He relied heavily on this special unit throughout the war, repeatedly asking for facts, just the facts. Facts. As the Nazi panzers swept across Europe, Churchill, panzers are tanks, I believe, swept across Europe, Churchill went to bed and slept soundly. I had no need for cheering dreams, he wrote. Facts are better than dreams. He must have just had really shitty dreams, because uh, it's not hard to be preferable to uh, a growing Nazi regime. <laughs> A climate where the truth is heard. Now you might be wondering, how do you motivate people with brutal facts? Doesn't motivation flow chiefly from a compelling vision? Mm, I don't know. I'm not wondering that. That sounds like a terribly, terribly negative view of the world. I mean, he said compelling vision, so it doesn't sound as bad, but it sounds like, like the real facts of what you're saying there is like, how do you motivate people because reality is so terrible? Don't we need to like spice it up and give some sort of cool presentation to inspire them? How can we possibly use what's really around us to motivate people? That's a pretty dark fucking outlook. The answer, surprisingly, is no. Not because vision is unimportant, but because expending energy trying to motivate people is largely a waste of time. One of the dominant themes that runs throughout this book is that if you successfully implement its findings, you will not need to spend time and energy motivating people. If you have the right people on the bus, oh fuck, they will be self-motivated. Huh, you're not even, you're not going to talk about getting the wrong people off the bus? All right, all right, but if you fucking bring it up in a few sentences, I'm going to be pissed. The real question then becomes, how do you manage in such a way as to not demotivate people? And one of the single most demotivating actions you can take is to hold out false hopes, soon to be swept away by events. That's an interesting point. So you don't want to make it sound, you know, better than it is, because then people are going to get disappointed by it. Like, it's it's about confronting reality, which is, I mean, you could talk about almost any topic and have that be relevant, you know, which doesn't mean it's saying it out loud is going to change anything. Um, It's not enough to merely point it out because it is such a ubiquitous problem that um, no matter how much you know about business or how much you know about anything, I'm sure that concept has presented itself to you at some point. That said, cool. Um, 
All right, we've got a box to set. Yes, leadership is about vision, but leadership is equally about creating a climate where the truth is heard and the brutal facts confronted. There's a huge difference between the opportunity to have your say and the opportunity to be heard. The good to great leaders understood this distinction, creating a culture wherein people had a tremendous opportunity to be heard and ultimately for the truth to be heard. How do you, cre how do you create a climate where the truth is heard? I'm glad you asked. We offer four basic practices. All right, this might prove to be useful. Number one. Lead with questions, not answers. In 1973, one year after he assumed CEO responsibility from his father, Alan Wurzel's company stood at the brink of bankruptcy, dangerously close to violation of its loan agreements. At the time, the company, then named Ward's, not to be confused with Montgomery Ward, was a hodgepodge of appliance and hi-fi stores with no unifying concept. What company are we talking about? Whatever, well... No, soon enough. Over the next 10 years, Wurzel and his team not only oh, Circuit City not only turned the company around, but also created the Circuit City concept and laid the foundations for a stunning record of results, beating the market 22 times from its transition date in 1982 to January 1st, 2000. You know what? I'm just going to... Circuit City, 2000 to 2010. I'll just say... Circuit City is an American online consumer electric blah, 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 formed by Ronnie Schmoll in 2016 as part of his acquisition of the brand name and trademarks rights sold by Systemax, which formerly operated the CircuitCity.com website <clears throat> when it was consolidated into the Tiger Direct brand. Well, Circuit City is Tiger Direct? That's like a fucking small website that I have heard of only because I have like spent significant time searching for deals and they sell like used computers all right in the 2000s uh this is from wikipedia by 2000 many circuit city stores were out of date and in bad locations unable to compete with newer best buy stores <laughs> they're also not doing great by now i don't think in 2000 circuit city abandoned the larger plants business and introduced a more self-serve big box format called horizon this is contra okay that's too much information uh the company had earned nearly us 1.6 billion in sales revenue from large appliances in 1999 uh, Home Depot concerning it was later realized Circuit City missed out on the residential housing boom um, okay so it's still around it's just in a totally different format but in 2007 the starting wage for new employees dropped from 8.75 an hour down to 7.40 an hour 6.55 being the federal minimum wage at the time laid off approximately 3,400 better paid associates so it doesn't sound like it's doing great. In April 2008, video rental firm Blockbuster announced a bid worth $1 billion to purchase Circuit City. In July 2000... Wow! So... <laughs> wow! I can't believe Blockbuster went under with such forward-thinking ideas such as declining Netflix's offer to partner up and trying to bid for Circuit City. It's just some fucking dumb Christian guy owned a Blockbuster and made some, like, one computer program that allowed them. Okay, I'm, we're getting a little off topic. Um, where were we? Other things that I can imbue with hate. What are we doing? 
Now, I, I just, okay, so just real quick. So Blockbuster, what Blockbuster was, was uh, it was founded in 1985, the year I was born. Um, it basically, it was in the right place at the right time. It took, it was uh, taking advantage of booming industries and it just, it was the one that took off the most. And that, that's because it was the chain one. And then it took, you know, it's, <clears throat> video stores were a boom in itself. And Blockbuster was the chain of those video stores. Um, you know, we were very poor. And on top of that, my parents didn't care at all about technology and still don't. But I do remember when I was like three, maybe four, we got, um, we owned a VHS thing. Now, prior to that, we did not. And I remember you could go to the library and rent one. Um, Santa Monica Library. And uh point is, it was a thing that sprang up. There were video stores everywhere. It was a new, it was a new technology in the eighties, right? So, also Blockbuster, what it did well was the guy was a computer guy, and it, it introduced when other ones did not another new technology that was emerging, which is computers, and it had to ch- check out process. I mean, everyone had adopted it immediately afterwards, but um, those were the two things that made it big. And then as soon as uh, those things were no longer cutting edge that died um and i think they also probably got they didn't have an adult section which like if you remember every video store did like it was just like a she sometimes you would actually go back behind a curtain sometimes there's just a binder behind the thing but like that was a thing um so you know it's hard for me to be like they suck for not having the porn but like they also they carried that into other things, um, which is to say they 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 took an I mean movies are an art form they took an art form and they only stocked the movies that would appeal most to the masses um, and they tried to create a family friendly environment which that's you know on the surface that's okay but what that also means is like a traditional family type thing it's not carry as much subversive things it did not subscribe to trying to get you know they were not at all interested in supplying art to people <clears throat> but yeah that whole home video thing was just a couple decades like it, the 80s 90s and then 2000s like 2005 probably is like dvds got really big uh, not before that but anyway then netflix came and then it was uh and it was streaming but netflix was taken off even before that a hodgepodge of appliance hi-fi stores with no unifying concept why did i who knows over the next 10 years Wurzel and his team not only turned the company around but also created the circuit city concept and laid the foundation for a stunning record of results beating the market 22 times from its transition date in 1982 to january 1st 2000 when Alan Wurzel started the long traverse from near bankruptcy to these stellar results, he began with a remarkable answer to the question of where to take the company. I don't know. Unlike leaders such as Roy Ash of Addressograph, Wurzel resisted the urge to walk in with the answer. Instead, once he put the right people on the bus, he began not with answers, but with questions. Alan was a real spark, said a board member. Again, it sounds like that Ash guide whether or not he did listen to people they haven't addressed at all they're just like vaguely hinting at the fact that he didn't but um 
either way, it sounds like he did pick an industry that was going to take off. Like, that's all the information we have about him. He had an ability to ask questions that were just marvelous. I like that. I like that. I like the idea of someone who can ask really good questions. We had some wonderful debates in the boardroom. It was never just a dog and pony show where you would just listen and then go to lunch. We talk about abortion a lot. Indeed, Wurzel stands as one of the few CEOs. Uh, I said that too dry. That wasn't part of it, the abortion thing. Uh, Wurzel stands as one of the few CEOs in a large corporation who put more questions to his board members than they put to him. Um, although I'm just going to point out the whole thing that you were just saying before is it's good to have them be able to question you. So you could be a CEO who put more questions to his board members than they put to him quite easily by being the type of person that Ash purportedly was. What I'm saying is your sentence is not describing what you wanted to. He used the same approach with his executive team, constantly pushing and probing and prodding with questions. Okay. Each step along the way, Wurzel would keep asking questions until he had a clear picture of reality and its implications. They used to call me the prosecutor because I would I would home in, supposed to be hone, I'm assuming, I would home in on a question, said Wurzel, you know, like a bulldog. I wouldn't let go until I understood. Why, why, why? Ah, yes, bulldogs, the philosophers of the dog world. Like Wurzel, leaders in each of the good-to-great transitions operated with a somewhat Socratic style. Furthermore, they used questions for one and only one reason, to gain understanding. They didn't use questions as a form of manipulation. Don't you agree with me on that? Or as a way to blame or put down others. Why did you mess this up? God. Okay. I'll take one example, but like... Nobody thinks when you talk about the Socratic method and questions, that's what you're doing. No one's like, well, technically, they're asking questions when you say, why'd you mess that up? So, uh, yeah. When we ask the executives about their management, I mean, maybe people do, but that's a problem in itself. That, that makes me angry as well. When we asked the executives about their management team meetings during the transition era, they said that they spent much of the time just trying to understand. Uh, the good to great leaders made particularly good use of informal meetings where they'd meet with groups of managers and employees with no script, agenda, or set of action items to discuss. Instead, they'd start with questions like, So what's on your mind? Can you tell me about that? Can you help me understand? What should we be worried about? These non-agenda meetings became a forum where current realities tended to bubble to the surface. I think that goes hand in hand with the like good work environment thing where you have good people around because you're going to build rapport with them and you're just going to have like actual conversations about things. Box decide. Leading from good to great does not mean coming up with the answers and then motivating everyone to follow your messianic vision. It means having the humility to grasp the fact that you do not yet understand enough to have the answers, and then to ask the questions that will lead to the best possible insights. Again, something that it should go without saying, but I get that it doesn't necessarily go without saying, so you have to say it. Um, number two, I forgot we were in a list of things, but okay. Uh, number two, engage in dialogue and debate not coercion. I can't believe I have to expand on that, but let's talk about why not coercion. Uh, 
1965, you could hardly find a company more awful than Nucor. <laughs> it had only one division that made money. Everything else drained cash. It had no culture to be proud of. It had no consistent direction. It was on the verge of bankruptcy. It's got no culture. It's a, a cheese ball. Yeah, you're right. It is a cheese ball. That is from... Well, you know what it's from. You know what it's from. At the time, Nucor... Guys got no freaking class. Uh, at the time, Nucor was officially known as the Nuclear Corporation of America, reflecting its orientation to nuclear energy products, including the scintillation probe. Yes, they really named it that. Used for radiation measurement. Wow, the scintillation probe. I mean, that could easily still be a product today, but... Uh, give props to the author for finding that little nugget. That is pretty funny. It had acquired a series of unrelated businesses in such arenas as semiconductor supplies, rare earth metals, electrostatic office copiers, and roof joists. Whatever that is, I'm not going to look it up. At the start of its transformation in 65, Nucor did not manufacture one ounce of steel, nor did it make a penny of profit. Thirty years later, Nucor stood as the fourth largest steelmaker in the world and by 99 made greater annual profits than any other American steel company. How did Nucor transition from the utterly awful Nuclear Corporation of America into perhaps the best steel company in America? First, Nucor benefited from the emergence of a level 5 leader, Ken Iverson, promoted to CEO from the general manager of the Joist Division. Oh! <laughs> Also, the joist snuck up in the joist thing because no one knew what it was. Um, second, Iverson got the right people on the bus, building a remarkable team of people like Sam Siegel, described by one of his colleagues as the best money manager in the world, a magician. <laughs> he could make it disappear. And David Acock, an operations genius. I'm looking for David Acock. Hey, is there David a cock. Is there a cock, David? <laughs> it didn't really work. Anyway. Uh, and then what? Like Alan Wardsell, Iverson dreamed of building a great company, but refused to begin with the answer for how to get there. Instead, he played the role of Socratic moderator in a series of raging debates. We established an ongoing, this is a quote, we established an ongoing series of general manager meetings, and my role was more as a mediator, commented Iverson. They were chaos. We would stay there for hours, ironing out the issues, until we came to something. At times, the meetings would get so violent that people almost went across the table at each other. People yelled. They waved their arms around and pounded on tables. Faces would get red and veins bulged out. Uh, I could take an easy path and say, you know, make fun of the fact that he's touting the idea that people would, like, uh, be pissed off at each other is a good thing. But that does actually sound fucking awesome. Like, it... To, you have to be in a good environment um, to have, like, a company debate where people care about it enough to actually get pissed at each other. Unless you're just talking about something like how you apportion the money, you know? <laughs> like, we think these people should make more money and you less. Like, that'll get people pissed off. But if you're talking about actual, like, conceptual things, that's pretty cool. Iverson's assistant tells of a scene repeated over the years, wherein colleagues would march into Iverson's office and yell and scream at each other, but then emerge with a conclusion. Argue and debate, then sell the nuclear business. Argue and debate, then focus on steel joists. Ah, this guy's got a thing for joists. Typical joist guy. 
sticking to his background and joists. Argue and debate, then begin to manufacture their own steel. Argue and debate, then invest in their own mini-mill. Argue and debate, then build a second mini-mill, and so forth. Okay, you didn't need the last example. Just say mini-mills. You don't need... Nearly all the new core executives we spoke with described a climate of debate, wherein the company's strategy, quote, evolved through many agonizing arguments and fights. Fox decide, like Nucor, all the good to great companies had a penchant for intense dialogue. Phrases like loud debate, heated discussions, and healthy conflict peppered the articles and interview transcripts from all the companies. They didn't use discussion as a sham process to let people, quote, have their say so that they could buy in to a predetermined decision. The process was more like a heated scientific debate with people engaged in a search for the best answers. Number three, conduct autopsies without blame. In 1978, Philip Morris acquired... Yeah, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to joke about that. In 1978, Philip Morris acquired the 7-Up Company, only to sell it eight years later at a loss. The financial loss was relatively small compared to Philip Morris's total assets, but it was a highly visible black eye that consumed thousands of hours of precious management time. In our interviews with the Philip Morris executives, we were struck by how they, how they all brought up the debacle on their own and discussed it openly. Instead of hiding their big, ugly mistake, they seemed to feel an almost therapeutic need to talk about it. In his book, I'm a Lucky Guy, Joe Coleman dedicated five pages to dissecting the 7-Up disaster. That doesn't sound like a tremendous amount, but okay. Uh, he doesn't hold back at the embarrassing truth about how flawed the decision was. It is a five-page clinical analysis. <laughs> okay, just say that, like, you don't don't bring up the five pages twice. Like, one time it's like, okay, you're just de detail-oriented. Two times you think that five pages has some specific, uh, you know, like, implication to it. And this, of all books, should not do something like that because this of all books does not have the right to make that claim because they can spend five pages expounding on a simple concept and they do it constantly um it is a five-page clinical analysis of the mistake its implications and its lessons Hundreds, if not thousands, of people hours had been spent in autopsies at the 7-Up case. Yet as much as they talked about this conspicuous failure, no one pointed fingers to single out blame. There's only one exception to this pattern. Joe Coleman, standing in front of the mirror, pointing the finger right at himself. It became apparent that this was another Joe Coleman plan that didn't work, he writes. He goes even further, implying that if he'd only listened better to the people who challenged his idea at the time, the disaster might have been averted. He goes out of his way to give credit to those who were right in retrospect, naming those specific individuals who were more prescient than himself. It's a shame I fired them and they died homeless, but props to you for being right. Um, in an era when leaders go to great lengths to preserve the image of their own track record, stepping forth to claim credit about how they were visionary when their colleagues were not, but finding others to blame when their decisions go awry, it is quite refreshing to come across Coleman. He set the tone. I will take responsibility for this bad decision, but we will all take responsibility for extracting the maximum learning from the tuition we've paid. I, I like that way of putting it. It's tuition that you've paid, and you're going to learn from it. That's cool. Box decided when you conduct autopsies without blame, you go a long way toward creating a climate where the truth is heard. Uh, 
If you have the right people on the bus, if you have the right people on the bus, you should almost never need to assign blame, but need only to search for understanding and learning. Number four, build red flag mechanisms. We live in an information age, when those with more and better information supposedly have an advantage. If you look across the rise and fall of organizations, however, you will rarely find companies stumbling because they lacked information. Bethlehem Steel executives had known for years about the threat of mini-mill companies like Nucor. They paid little attention until they woke up one day to discover large chunks of market share taken away. Upjohn had plenty of information that indicated some of its forthcoming products would fail to deliver anticipated results, or worse, had potentially serious side effects. Oh yeah? You can't think of any other companies you've been touting that failed to see potentially serious side effects? Just Upjohn? Yet, it often ignored these problems. With Halcyon, for example, an insider was quoted in Newsweek saying, Dismissing safety concerns about Halcyon had become virtual company policy. In another case, when Upjohn found itself under fire, it framed its problems as adverse publicity, rather than confronting the truth of, truth of its own shortcomings. Ah, it uh, brings to mind the idea of fake news. But moving on, executives at Bank of America had plenty of information about the realities of deregulation, yet they failed to confront the one big implication of those realities. In a deregulated world, banking would be a commodity, and the old perks and genteel traditions of banking would be gone forever. Not until it had lost a $1.8 billion did Bank of America fully accept this fact. In contrast, Carl Reichart of Wells Fargo, called the ultimate realist, was called the... no called the ultimate realist by his predecessor, hit the brutal facts of deregulation head-on. Sorry, fellow bankers, but we can preserve the banker class no more. We've got to be businessmen with as much attention to costs and effectiveness as McDonald's. Acting like deregulation was like a huge hit to banking. Box decided, indeed, we found no evidence that the good-to-great companies had more or better information than the comparison companies. None. Both sets of companies had virtually identical access to good information. The key, then, lies not in better information, but in turning information into information that cannot be ignored. And to be fair, that, that is something that Blockbuster, by the way, did do, is, like, target based on demographics. I mean, that's just a vague... Uh, like segue, but it brought it to mind. Um, one particularly powerful way to accomplish this is through red flag mechanisms. Allow me to use a personal example to illustrate the idea. When teaching by the case method at Stanford Business School, I issued each MBA student an eight and a half by 11 bright red sheet of paper with the following instructions. This is your red flag for the quarter. If you raise your hand with your red flag, the classroom will stop for you. There are no restrictions on when and how to use your red flag. The decision rests entirely in your hands. You can use it to voice an observation, share a personal experience, present an analysis, disagree with the professor, challenge a CEO guest, respond to a fellow student, ask a question, make a suggestion, or whatever. There will be no penalty whatsoever for any use of a red flag. Your red flag can be used only once during the quarter. Your red flag is non-transferable. You cannot give or sell it to another student. 
With the red flag, I had no idea precisely what would happen each day in class. In one situation, a student used her red flag to state, Professor Collins, I think you are doing a particularly ineffective job of running class today. You are leading too much with your questions and stifling our independent thinking. Let us think for ourselves. The red flag confronted me with the brutal fact that my own questioning style stood in the way of people's learning. A student survey at the end of the quarter would have given me the same information, but the red flag, in real time, in front of everyone in the class, turned information about the shortcomings of the class into information that I absolutely could not ignore. It's pretty cool. I got the idea for red flag mechanisms from Bruce Wolpert, who instituted a particularly powerful device called Short Pay at his company Granite Rock. Short pay gives the customer full discretionary power to decide whether and how much to pay on an invoice based upon his own subjective evaluation of how satisfied he feels with a product or service. Short pay is not a refund policy. The customer does not need to return the product, nor does he need to call Granite Rock for permission. He simply circles the offending item on the invoice, deducts it from the total, and sends a check for the balance. When I asked Wolpert his reason for short pay, he said, you can get a lot of information from customer surveys, but there are always ways of explaining away the data. With short pay, you absolutely have to pay attention to the data. You often don't know that a customer is upset until you lose that customer entirely. Short pay acts as an early warning system that forces us to adjust quickly, long before we would lose that customer. To be clear, we did not generally find red flag mechanisms as vivid and dramatic as short pay and the good-to-great companies. Nonetheless, I've decided to include this here at the urging of research assistant Lane Hornung. Hornung, who helped me systematically research and collate mechanisms across companies for a different research project, makes the compelling argument that if you're a fully developed level 5 leader, you might not need red flag mechanisms. But if you're not yet a level 5 leader, or if you suffer the liability of charisma... Red flag mechanisms give you a practical and useful tool for turning information into information that cannot be ignored and for creating a climate where the truth is heard. And as weird as it is, I'm starting to, it just, I, I, I kind of, I mean, there is a poetic nature to that liability of charisma phrase. Still think it's weird, but I like it aesthetically. Unwavering faith amid the brutal facts feel like we've covered this and we didn't do a good job of covering it so i guess i shouldn't complain because this is a chance to expand on the things that i said were lacking earlier uh, let's see if it is i have no idea what that voice was supposed to be but um when procter and gamble invaded the paper-based consumer business in the late 60s scott paper then the leader simply resigned itself to second place without a fight and began looking for ways to diversify scott paper's the one we said was not good right uh, the company had a meeting for analysts in 1971 that was one of the most depressing i've ever attended said one analyst Management essentially threw in the towel and said, we've been had. The once proud company began to look at its comp competition and say, how? Here's how we stack up against the best. And sigh, oh well, at least there are people in the business worse than we are. Instead of figuring out how to get back on the offensive and win, Scott just tried to protect what it had. Conceding the top end of the market to P&G, Scott hoped that, by hiding away in the B category, it would be left alone by the big monster that had invaded its turf. 
Kimberly Clark, on the other hand, viewed competing against Procter & Gamble not as a liability, but as an asset. Yeah, yeah, burn the ships. Uh, Darwin Smith said his team felt exhilarated by the idea of going up against the best, seeing it as an opportunity to make Kimberly Clark better and stronger. They also viewed it as a way to, oh, to stimulate the competitive juices of Kimberly people at all levels. At one internal gathering, Darwin Smith stood up and started his talk by saying, Okay, I want everyone to rise in a moment of silence. Everyone looked around, wondering what Darwin was up to. Did someone die? And so, after a moment of confusion, they all stood up and stared at their shoes in reverent silence. After an appropriate pause, Smith looked out at the group and said in a somber tone, That was a moment of silence for P&G. Burn. The place went bananas. Blair White, a director who witnessed the incident, said he had everyone wound up in this thing, all up and down the company, right down to the plant floor. We were taking on Goliath. Later, Wayne Sanders, Smith's successor, described to us the incredible benefit of, of competing against the best. Could we have a better adversary than P&G? Not a chance. I say that because we respect them so much. They are bigger than we are. They are very talented. They are great at marketing. They beat the hell out of every one of their competitors, except one, Kimberly Clark. That is one of the things that makes us so proud. Aside, Scott Paper and Kimberly Clark's differing reactions to P&G, Procter & Gamble, I, right? <laughs> I'm starting to forget, but uh, brings us to a vital point. In confronting the brutal facts, the good to great companies left themselves stronger and more resilient, not weaker and more dispirited. There is a sense of exhilaration that comes in facing head-on the hard truths and saying, we will never give up. We will never capitulate. It might take a long time, but we will find a way to prevail. <sighs> I'm bored by your enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Aders of Kroger summed this up nicely at the end of his interview, describing the psychology of the Kroger team as it faced the daunting 20-year task of methodically turning over the entire Kroger system. There was a certain Churchillian character to what we were doing. We had a very strong will to live, the sense that we are Kroger. Kroger was here before and will be here long after we're gone, and by God, we're going to win this thing. It might take us a hundred years, but we will persist for a hundred years if that's what it takes. Throughout our research, we were continually reminded of the hardiness research studies done by the International Committee for the Study of Victimization. Hmm, interesting, I've never heard of that. These studies looked at people who had suffered serious adversity, cancer patients, prisoners of war, accident victims, and so forth, and survived. They found that people fell generally into three categories— those who were permanently dispirited by the event, those who got their life back to normal, and those who used the experience as a defining event that made them stronger. The good to great companies were like those in the third group, with the hardiness factor. Um, I mean, again, it's a thing where it's like, <clears throat> it is interesting, but to a point, like, it's also something where, unless we're going to describe some way of emulating that or you know like something we can gain f from the hardy people uh it's not worth anything like just the idea that you're separating people into these different categories and stretching that out like some like the you know the most boring sociology textbook like that's not worth anything um maybe there's some people too dumb to create categories in their mind but uh, 
most of us couldn't see that people respond to adversity differently. And even the people who can't, like, who cares? They're still not getting anything from this. Unless they're going to talk to some other dumb person at a dinner party and be like, did you know some people respond to things like this and some people like this? When Fannie Mae began its transition in the early 80s, almost no one gave it high odds for success, much less for greatness. Fannie Mae had $56 billion of loans that were losing money. Yikes. It received about 9% interest on its mortgage portfolio, but had to pay up to 15% on the debt it issued. Multiply that difference 56 times 56 billion, and you get a very large negative number. Furthermore, by charter, Fannie Mae could not diversify outside the mortgage finance business. Most people viewed Fannie Mae as totally beholden to shifts in the direction of interest rates. They go up and Fannie Mae loses. They go down and Fannie Mae wins. And many believed that Fannie Mae could succeed only if the government stepped in to clamp down on interest rates. That's their only hope, said one analyst. But that's not the way David Maxwell and his newly assembled team viewed the situation. They never wavered in their faith, consistently emphasizing in their interviews uh, with us that they never had the goal to merely survive, but to prevail in the end as a great company. Yes, the interest spread was a brutal fact that was not going to magically disappear. I mean, again, we're just talking about resilience, like the people that wanted to prevail over adversity did better than the people who are just trying to survive but that's uh, that's nothing to spend more than one sentence on like that's that's like an intro to something but it doesn't seem to usually play out that way here it's more like an intro to describing that same sentence over and over and again i i'm kind of enjoying this in a sense like it's not worth nothing but uh, it sounds like they did some real in-depth analysis and probably in their conversations must have come up with some interesting things when they had all these people fucking studying these things. Like, it's a tremendous opportunity and a cool thing to do. Um, and I just feel like the way they are translating that into this book, it's falling very short of what that amount of information and people hours could come up with yes the interest spread was a brutal fact that was not going to magically disappear fannie mae had no choice but to become the best capital markets player in the world at managing mortgage interest risk maxwell and his team set out to create a new business model that would depend much less on interest rates involving the intervention of very sophisticated mortgage finance instruments most analysts responded with derision when you've got six, when you've got fifty-six billion worth of loans in place and underwater, talking about new programs is a joke," said one. "That's like Chrysler, then asking for federal loan guarantees to stave off bankruptcy, going into the aircraft business." After completing my interview with David Maxwell, I asked how he and his team dealt with the naysayers during those dark days. It was never an issue internally," he said. Of course, we had to stop doing a lot of stupid things, and we had to invent a completely new set of financial devices, but we never entertained the possibility that we would fail. We were going to use the calamity as an opportunity to remake Fannie Mae into a great company. During a research meeting, a team member commented that Fannie Mae reminded her of an old television show, The Six Million Dollar Man with Lee Majors. 
The pretext of the series is that an astronaut suffers a serious crash while testing a moon landing craft over a southwestern desert. Instead of just trying to save the patient, doctors completely redesign him into a superhuman cyborg, installing atomic-powered robotic devices such as a powerful left eye and mechanical limbs. (laughs) A powerful left eye. Similarly, David Maxwell and his team didn't use the fact that Fannie Mae was bleeding and near death as a pretext to merely restructure the company. They used it as an opportunity to create something much stronger and more powerful. Step by step, day by day, month by month, the Fannie Mae team rebuilt the entire business model around risk management and reshaped the corporate culture into a high-performance machine that rivaled anything on Wall Street, eventually generating stock returns nearly eight times the market over 15 years. All right, I'm going to try and finish this chapter. The Stockdale Paradox. Isn't that a Denzel Washington movie? Of course, not all good-to-great companies faced a dire crisis like Fannie Mae. Fewer than half did. But every good-to-great company faced significant adversity along the way to greatness of one sort or another. Gillette in the takeover battles, Nucor and imports, Wells Fargo and deregulation, Pitney Bowes losing its monopoly, Abbott Labs and a huge product recall, Kroger and the need to replace nearly 100% of its stores, and so forth. Don't stop now. There's only 11 cases. We've gone through most of them. In every case, the management team responded with a powerful psychological duality. On the one hand, they stoically accepted the brutal facts of reality. On the other hand, they maintained an unwavering faith in the end game and a commitment to prevail as a great company despite the brutal facts. We came to call this duality the Stockdale Paradox. The name refers to Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was the highest-ranking United States military officer in the Hanoi Hilton, in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. Tortured over 20 times during his eight-year imprisonment from 65 to 73, Stockdale lived out the war without any prisoner's rights, no set release date, and no certainty as to whether he would even survive to see his family again. He shouldered the burden of command, doing everything he could to create conditions that would increase the number of prisoners who would survive unbroken, while fighting an internal war against his captors and their attempts to use the prisoners for propaganda. At one point, he beat himself with a stool and cut himself with a razor, deliberately disfiguring himself so that he could not be put on videotape as an example of a well-treated prisoner. Whoa, that's fucking hardcore. That's fucking awesome. Although it's funny that, like, he is, like, it's not like he refused to put on makeup. Like, he, they were presenting him as he was. Like, obviously, they were doing that. To, they were treating him differently than the other prisoners. But it is funny that he had to, like, make a lie out of it and make it look like they were doing that to him in order to tell a greater truth about what they were doing to other prisoners. He exchanged secret intelligence information with his wife through their letters. They let him have letters? Come on, what kind of a fucking death camp is this? Knowing that discovery would mean more torture and perhaps death. He instituted rules that would help people to deal with torture. No one can resist torture indefinitely, so he created a stepwise system. After X minutes, you can say certain things. That gave the men milestones to survive toward. Wow, that is fucking hardcore. It's smart. They were probably, you know, really high, I'm guessing. That's fucking crazy. That's so smart, though. And so weird and so fucking just fuck. 
He instituted an elaborate internal communication system to reduce the sense of isolation that their captors tried to create, which used a 5x5 matrix of tap codes for alpha characters. Tap tap equals the letter A. Tap pause, tap tap equals the letter B. I don't, please don't run through all these. Tap tap pause tap equals the letter F and so forth for 25 letters. <laughs> C doubling in for K. That's fucking funny. Uh, we don't we don't fucking need k like fuck k you can only tap and pause so many times at one point during an imposed silence the prisoners mopped and swept the central yard using the code swish swashing out we love you to stockdale on the third anniversary of his being shot down after his release stockdale became the first mina she's pissed off she doesn't like this. After his release, Stockdale became the first three-star officer in the history of the Navy to wear both aviator wings and the Congressional Medal of Honor. You can understand, then, my anticipation at the prospect of spending part of an afternoon with Stockdale. One of my students had written his paper on Stockdale, who happened to be a senior research fellow studying the Stoic philosophers at the Hoover Institution right across the street from my office, and Stockdale invited the two of us for lunch. Oh, Stockdale's the one. Stockdale was a senior research fellow, right? Studying the Stoic philosophers. So he's a fucking hardcore dude. Like, Stoicism is all about denying yourself, like, pleasures and whatnot. This guy is, like, I don't know if I should call him a hero or a role model or what, but he's he's fucking, he's, he's hardcore. Duh. Like, no doubt about that. Like, and... I kind of want to point that out because I, I was making fun of the Marines quote earlier, but I'm not just like an anti-army guy. Like, this guy is someone who you could learn something from. That other quote was just a bullshit nothing quote. In preparation, I read In Love and War, the book Stockdale and his wife had written in alternating chapters, chronicling their experiences during those eight years. Oh, that sounds actually really cool. Um giving you both their perspectives it's probably pretty interesting eight years i gotta say that like at that point like it's hard to well i i am curious to hear what he says because there's that element of like you can take this and become a better person but once you get to like eight years it's like you got to start doing the math like okay well now this is like really eating into my whole life expectancy thing like how many years do I have left? Like, no matter how much I learn from this experience, at some point, uh, you can't write it off as, like, a character-building thing anymore because it's like, okay, well, that was literally half the time I had left in my life. So um, it's not going to make, you know, it, there are diminishing returns. As I moved through the book, I found myself getting depressed. Huh, that's... <laughs> Uh, that was actually him talking about reading the book, but it also applies to me just talking out loud as I read this book. It just seemed so bleak, the uncertainty of his fate, the brutality of his captors, and so forth. And then it dawned on me. Here I am, sitting in my warm and comfortable office, looking out over the beautiful Stanford campus on a beautiful Saturday afternoon, completely naked, masturbating. Oh, sorry. Uh, he had that crap part crust out uh i'm getting depressed reading this and i know the end of the story i know that he gets out reunites with his family becomes a national hero and gets to spend the latter years of his life studying philosophy on the same beautiful campus 
If it feels depressing for me, how on earth did he deal with it when he was actually there and did not know the end of the story? I never lost faith in the end of the story, he said when I asked him. I never doubted not only that it, that would I get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which, in retrospect, I would not trade. That's a powerful thing to say you would not trade it. But it kind of harkens back to what I said, like, at some point, it's hard to make that argument. You're like, this is going to be the defining point in my life, like... Yeah, it has to be. Mathematically, you've spent 70% of your life here now. Like, uh, you know. I didn't say anything for many minutes, and we continued the slow walk toward the faculty club, Stockdale limping and arc swinging his Soraya described by... What? The text got all jumbled. Swinging his Soraya described by equals... Weird. A leg that had never fully recovered from repeated torture. Finally, after about a hundred meters of silence, I asked, Who didn't make it out? Oh, that's easy, he said. The optimists. The optimists? I don't understand, I said, now completely confused, given what he'd said a hundred meters earlier. The optimists. Oh, they were the ones who said, We're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. Then they'd say, We're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go and then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again, and they died of a broken heart. Oh, God. That sounds familiar. Does that mean that I am, dun-dun-dun, an optimist? Another long pause and more walking. Then he turned to me and said, This is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Wow, I said that was hardcore before, but it means a lot more coming from him. To this day, I carry a mental image of Stockdale admonishing the optimists. We're not getting out by Christmas. Deal with it. (laughs) I hope he didn't actually say that. I mean, whatever. That conversation with Admiral Stockdale stayed with me, and in fact had a profound influence in my own development. Life is unfair, sometimes to our advantage, sometimes to our disadvantage. We will all experience disappointments and crushing events somewhere along the way, setbacks for which there is no, quote, reason, no one to blame. It might be disease, it might be injury, it might be an accident, it might be losing a loved one, it might be getting swept away in a political shakeup, it might be getting shot down over Vietnam and thrown into a POW camp for eight years. What separates people, Stockdale taught me, is not the presence of presence or absence of difficulty, but how they deal with the inevitable difficulties of life. And wrestling with life's challenges, the Stockdale paradox. You must retain faith that you will prevail in the end, and you must also confront the most brutal facts of your own reality, has proved powerful for coming back from difficulties not weakened but stronger. Not just for me, but for all those who've learned the lesson and tried to apply it. Here we have a boxed side. Looks like it's going to restate the same thing yet again, although, you know, I think this one's earned it, I guess. The Stockdale Paradox. Retain faith that you will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties, and, at the same time, confront the most brutal facts of your reality, whatever they might be. He did He did earn the right to say it again. I just really wish he hadn't reiterated it almost in exact the same, exactly the same language. Like, literally, 
three sentences before like where's the editor just take that part out if you're gonna have that big blue box stating it again like don't fucking say it two or three sentences before it was a run-on sentence it was one sentence before i, I just had to go back and learn because i didn't want to i didn't want to seem like i was exaggerating it it was one sentence before it was just a long sentence I never really considered my walk with Stockdale as part of my research into great companies, categorizing it more as a personal rather than corporate lesson. But as we unraveled the research evidence, I kept coming back to it in my own mind. Finally, one day during a research team meeting, I shared the Stockdale story. There was silence around the table when I finished, and I thought, they must think I'm really out in left field. Then Dwayne Duffy, a quiet and thoughtful team member who had done the A&P versus Kroger analysis, said, that's exactly what I've been struggling with. I've been trying to get my hands around the essential difference between A&P and Kroger. And that's it. Kroger was like Stockdale, and A&P was like the optimist who always thought they'd be out by Christmas. Then other team members... God damn it. Son of a cunt. Then the other team members began to chime in, noting the same difference between their comparison sets. Wells Fargo versus Bank of America, both facing deregulation. Stop talking about deregulation like it was hard on the banks. Kimberly Clark versus Scott Paper, both facing the terrible might of Procter and Gamble. Pitney Bowes versus Addressograph. <laughs> yeah, we j- we just read chapters about these. They all demonstrated this paradoxical psychological pattern, and we dubbed it the Stockdale paradox. The Stockdale paradox is a signature of all those who create greatness, be it in leading their own lives or in leading others. Churchill had it during the Second World War. Admiral Stockdale, like Viktor Frankl before him, lived in a prison camp. Uh, Viktor Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He was a a, a Jewish prisoner in the concentration camps. And while our good-to-great companies cannot claim to have experienced either the grandeur of saving the free world or the depth of personal experience of living in a POW camp, they all embrace the Stockdale paradox. It didn't matter how bleak the situation or how stultifying their mediocrity, they They all maintained unwavering faith that they would not just survive but prevail as a great company. And yet, at the same time, they all became relentlessly disciplined at confronting the most brutal facts of their current reality. I think it warrants mention that uh, some brutal realities are more brutal than others, like... Uh, if there's a psychological block to admitting things, like it has to be easier to confront the reality of, oh no, I'm a CEO of a company that's not doing that well versus I'm a CEO CEO of a company that's doing very well, uh, as opposed to like, I might never get out of this POW camp. Like, oh God, I just can't face the reality that my company might not be in the Fortune 500 this year. Like much of what we found, my kid might have to go to Stanford. Stanford! Like some sort of minority child. All right, like much of what we found in our research, the key elements of greatness are deceptively simple and straightforward. The good to great leaders were able to strip away so much noise and clutter and just focus on the few things that would have the greatest impact. That joke might have been confusing because the guy was just talking about Stanford before, like it was a good thing. But I meant it in comparison to Harvard, which is clearly the superior school. 
they would be able to do it. Uh, they would be able to do so in large part because they operated from both sides of the Stockdale paradox, never letting one side overshadow the other. If you're able to adopt this dual pattern, you will dramatically increase the odds of making a series of good decisions and ultimately discovering a simple yet deeply insightful concept for making the really big choices. I like how he says dramatically increase the odds. That's a very good way to put it. And once you have that simple unifying concept, you will be very close to making a sustained transition to breakthrough results. It is to the creation of that concept that we now turn. Um, there's an explanation of an asterisk. I don't know where that asterisk was. Uh, I don't see it. Any must have been a while. But anyway, we'll just say, keep in mind, this was the early 70s, a full decade before the number one, number two, or exit idea became mainstream. Kroger, like all good to great companies, developed its ideas by paying attention to the data right in front of it, not by following trends and fads set by others. Interestingly, over half the good to great companies had some version of the number one, number two concept in place years before it became a management fad. For a more complete discussion of mechanisms, see the article, Turning Goals into Results, The Power of Catalytic Mechanisms, Harvard Business Review, July, August, 1999. So, something to look forward to. Chapter Summary, Confront the Brutal Facts, Yet Never Lose Faith. Key Points, Confront the Brutal Facts, Yet Never Lose Faith. I'm just kidding. It doesn't say that, but it is about to say that, I'm sure. Uh, all good to great companies began the process of finding a path to greatness by confronting the brutal facts of their current reality. When you start with an honest and diligent effort to determine the truth of your situation, the right decisions often become self-evident. It is impossible to make good decisions without infusing the entire process with an honest confrontation of the brutal facts. A primary task in taking a company from good to great is to create a culture wherein people have a tremendous opportunity to be heard, and ultimately for the truth to be heard. Creating a climate where the truth is heard involves four basic practices. 1. Lead with questions, not answers. 2. Engage in dialogue and debate, not coercion. 3. Conduct autopsies without blame. I'm not going to make a joke about that. Uh, four, build red flag mechanisms that turn information into information that cannot be ignored. The good to great companies face just as much adversity as the comparison companies, but responded to that adversity differently. They hit the realities of their situation head on. As a result, they emerged from adversity even stronger. Okay, the thing I resent about that is you don't need to say they face just as much adversity. You can say they both faced adversity and they dealt with it. Deal. Like it. What the, the implication of this is that there's some sort of like unifying thing of diversity and like there are obviously differences in diversity. Like you can admit that and still talk about how people deal with it better than others, but there's no need to say like, yes, it's all, everyone has the same amount of problems. A key psychology for leading from good to great is the Stockdale paradox. Retain absolute faith that you can and will prevail in the end, regardless of the difficulties, and at the same time confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Unexpected findings. Charisma can be as much a liability as an asset, as the strength of your leadership personality can deter people from bringing you the brutal facts. Leadership does not begin just with vision. It begins with getting people to confront the brutal facts and to act on the implications. Uh, 
And finally, spending time and energy trying to motivate people is a waste of effort. The real question is not how do we motivate our people. If you have the right people, they will be self-motivated. The key is not to demotivate them. One of the primary ways to demotivate people is to ignore the brutal facts of reality. And that is the end of chapter four.